Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters Sports Bar Navy Yard is hiring. Experienced servers and hosts should email brett at waltersdc.com. That's B-R-E-T-T at waltersdc.com for more information or stop by and fill out an application any day after 10 a.m. Come join one of the busiest restaurants around the ballpark for this summer or beyond. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Next pitch, hit in the air to deep left field. Ozuna going back, looking up. This one is going and it's long gone. Michael Franco has his first home run as a National. It's a two-run shot and a five-run inning. The Nationals five and the Braves one. The 1-1 is coming, and it's golfed in the air to shallow left center. Racing over Lane Thomas calling. He will put it away. That's your shutdown inning, folks. Nine pitches, three up, three down. Josh Rogers is retired now seven in a row. The kick in the pitch. Swing and a drive hit well to right field. Rosario going back. It's turned around way back. And it's over his head off the base of the wall. Bell has scored. Here comes Ruiz. He scores. Robles right behind him. He scores. On a booming bases clearing. Three-run double for Mike Franco. He has four hits in the game. It's now the Nationals 11 and the Braves 1. And welcome to Nats Chat for Tuesday, April 12th, 2022, along with Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, we on Monday afternoon had major Nats news. We on Monday night had a major Nats win. We will get to the news that the learners are exploring taking on a minority investor or investors or selling the team. There's a lot to discuss with that, but so much for the Nats' offensive struggles and 11 2 win at the Atlanta Braves on Monday night. Nats have gone from 0 3 to 2 3, and they won in dominant fashion on Monday night. 11 runs, including a five run third and a five run eighth, 15 hits, seven walks. Mark and I are going to see if we can cobble together $2 billion to buy the Nats. But in the meantime, Mark, what a win on Monday night. Well, their value might have gone up after this win, Al. You beat the defending champs like that? I mean, that was a beatdown. And yeah, obviously the offense is a huge part of this, but I don't want to overlook Josh Rogers in the scenario he's in, you know, sent down the last day of spring training. 
And then a week later, he never even made a start for Rochester, and he's up here as a number five starter, and he throws five and a third innings of one run, two hit ball. That was the best start of anyone the first time through the rotation. If last Tuesday night, as we were preparing for opening day, if I told you the best start out of the first five would come from Josh Rogers, would you have bought that one? Well, given the state of the rotation, actually, maybe. But, you know, what does this say about the Nats, who, like I said to you on the previous installment of the pod, didn't seem to have much interest in Josh Rogers being in the season opening rotation? I think it's really funny how this worked out. He gets the turn that Anibal Sanchez was supposed to have. Sanchez now is on the 10-day injured list with this cervical impingement of his neck. But, I mean, I don't know. The Nats, they seem to tip the scales so that Rogers wouldn't make the season opening rotation. He ends up doing so, and as he did over his six starts with the Nats last season, he pitched well on Monday night, and there really isn't a debate. This is the best outing by a Nats starting pitcher so far this season. Yeah, especially when you consider the lineup he was facing, and not just a very good Braves lineup, but a very right-handed heavy lineup, and he went right after them and was phenomenal, and I mean, I'll tell you what, well, he's guaranteed to make at least one more start because Anibal's uh, DL stint will last until at least the 18th. So they're going to need another starter. I think it's Saturday in Pittsburgh. He'll get that one. But honestly, unless he blows up in that start, I don't see how you send him back down now. They'll find a way to keep him here, whether it's sending Joanna Doan down or whether it's just taking their time now with Anibal. I mean, listen, if he isn't able to start throwing within a day or two, he's going to have missed enough time that he's got to build his arm up again. And you can say that that's legitimate. You can say that that's a way for the team to delay this for a while anyways with a 38-year-old who... You know, they added him to the 40-man roster at the end of the spring. So I don't see them just cutting ties with him anytime soon. But they can also slow play this if they want, keep him on the IL, let him build his arm back up, maybe make some rehab starts. But if Josh Rogers keeps doing this, he's going to pitch in the big leagues. He's not going back to Rochester. Yeah, I mean, in the position the Nats are in, they're in no position to thumb their nose at any pitcher who shows any promise. Josh Rogers has done nothing but pitch well for the Nets since they got him. Whether he's supposed to be doing this, whether you know you feel like, well, is he going to keep doing this? It doesn't matter. You need all the pitching help you can get. And I don't know, to like bend over backwards to try to engage in this reclamation activity with Anibal Sanchez, I just, I find that peculiar, but we'll see. Maybe Sanchez does end up pitching well for the Nats. We do know for now that Rodgers is pitching well. He retired 10 straight Braves batters at one point in this game. One run in five and a third innings, gave up just two hits, issued two walks, threw three strikeouts. I mean, aside from giving up the run in the bottom of the first, It felt like, yeah, this guy had it going on on Monday night. Yeah, he threw 74 pitches, and 69 of them were either fastballs or sliders. He threw five changeups. That's it. Everything else, fastball, slider, and it worked because he was locating. He was working fast, as we've seen him do so much, which, my God, what a contrast from the Braves pitchers between Huascar, Enoa, and the relievers they put out there. They were taking forever. It was so refreshing to see Rodgers work fast, pounding the strike zone, inducing contact, not really worried about the strikeouts. He had three of them in his five and a third. It's just the same thing as last September. He's such a breath of fresh air in this day and age to see a guy who works fast and does that and, you know, pitches with some emotion. And, you know, I thought it was interesting. I asked him afterwards, like, were you upset? Were you down last Tuesday? I mean, he literally the last day of spring training, they play their last game. And then after the game, he finds out that he's been demoted and the entire team gets on the bus to leave, and they leave him there. He's the last man out of the building. 
and he has to go find his way to get to, it was actually Toledo, where Rochester was playing. And he said, yeah, I mean, he'd be lying if he didn't admit that he was kind of mad after that. But he said it lasted about 12 hours. Then he decided to refocus. They told him, listen, you're going to be our first call up whenever we need that. He knew it could happen at any point. He was ready to go, never actually pitched for them, flew to Atlanta on Sunday. And here he was on Monday pitching a gem. And it was really just a treat to see that. And you hope he can keep it up. Maybe they actually have found something here in Josh Rogers. Are you a law firm partner looking for a better situation for your practice and a blockbuster contract worthy of Juan Soto? If so, you should call Mason Kalfas of Zenith Legal in Washington, D.C. Works with law firms and lawyers on finding the perfect match. No platoons, just superstars. Some lawyers switch firms because of conflict. Some lawyers switch firms for a better platform for their practice. And some lawyers switch firms for more money. You need the Scott Boris of Legal Headhunters working for you, and that's Mason. Mason will work with you to find a better fit for your practice and ultimately the best deal for you and your entire team. Call him today at 202-486-3535 or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market, and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a Rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535. In Oa's delivery... Is hit in the air to left center field. This is well struck. Ozuna way back on the run. He's not going to get it, and it is off the top of the wall. Bell scores. Racing around third, Hernandez. Swanson's relay throw home. The head first dive, and he's in there. He scores, and it's a two-run double for Lane Thomas. Well, great job by Josh Rogers on Monday night, but the offense is what led the way in so many ways in this game. And what is so funny about what the offense did in this game is that While the big boppers did produce, there's no doubt about that, Juan Soto, Nelson Cruz, Josh Bell, the biggest bopper of the bunch was a guy who had like zero bop for the bulk of the four-game series to begin the Nats season against the Mets, Michael Franco, a.k.a. Mike Schmidt, on Monday night. Four for five, home run, double, two singles, and five RBI. Now, he did have a single in his last plate appearance, in that series against the Mets. And I'm not a believer in like, you know, momentum from one series carries over into the next series. But if you want to make that case, Michael Franco is exhibit A. Uh, What a night for him on Monday night. Top of the second, a one-out single to left field. In that Nats five-run third, a two-out, two-run homer to left field for a 5-1 Nats lead. Top of the fifth, a two-out opposite field single to right field. And then in the Nats five-run eighth, a two-out, three-run, opposite field double to right field for an 11-1 Nats lead. It was really fun to watch him hit on Monday night. He was the best offensive player for the Nats. Yeah, and look, what you were just talking about, I mean, that bottom of the eighth rally that we were discussing yesterday with all the small ball and the squeeze play and all that that got it done, okay, prior to that inning, they had played 34 offensive innings and scored five runs as a team. They scored three in that 
eighth inning rally, and then obviously they put up 11 tonight, so that's 14 runs in their last 10 innings. Maybe that was the thing that got it all going. Maybe we'll be talking a couple days from now about how they're struggling again, and it meant nothing at all. But for whatever reason, it seemed to work. And I mean, what a difference it makes when the bottom of your lineup actually produces. <laughs> I think we know that their two, three, four, five hitters are going to be pretty good, if not great. It's the rest of it. Can they get the job done? And for the better part of three games, really four games, they weren't getting anything from their six, seven, eight, nine hitters. Well, in this one, they all, well, six, seven, eight contributed. Yadiel Hernandez, Lane Thomas with a couple big hits, and of course, Franco, you know, a triple shy of the cycle he was on this night. I don't know if it'll last or not, but he was feeling good about it. He felt like he made some adjustments. He was laying off some breaking balls out of the zone. You know, you saw him kind of force them to throw him fastballs over the plate. And to his credit, he did really well in this game. And you hope he can carry that over uh, into Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, there aren't many guys who Davey has started in every game so far this season. Franco is one of them. And uh, that patience, that loyalty was rewarded on Monday night, no doubt. Uh, Lane Thomas had a nice game on Monday night. Now, he was the Nats starting center fielder, not left fielder in this game. Victor Robles, second straight game, does not start, does come off the bench, and he does what else gets hit by a pitch. That's what he does. Uh, but Lane Thomas on Monday night, two for five with a double, a single, and three RBI. He did strike out three times. It had been largely a slow start to the season, though, for Lane Thomas, but in that five-run Nats third, a two-out, two-run double off the left center field wall to put the Nats up 3-1. You know, Thomas was down at 1.02, so nice piece of hitting there. And then in the Nats, one run seventh, a one-out RBI single to center field for a 6-1 Nats lead. If things are more open in the Nats outfield beyond right field than we realized, then you do need to hit to keep earning your spot in these Davey Martinez lineups. So I think from that standpoint, you could say that Lane Thomas needed this on Monday night, but uh, he was productive in this game. I think he needed it. Um, he was 0 for 8 after his strikeout in the second inning. And then what he did, and that's another thing they were talking with him about, is he's a good fastball hitter, but he was late on everything for a couple of days. And they said, you got to get started earlier, be ready for it. And the double was on a 96-mile-an-hour fastball up even above the strike zone. And he went up and got it. He almost hit it out of the park. It was 395 feet to left center field for that two-run double. And then the RBI single later was another high fastball. So we talk so much about coming out of spring training, hitters needing to get their timing down. A lot of that has to do with hitting high velocity. If they're a little late on it, they're not going to get there. And you saw Thomas do that. You saw Franco do that. It's something they've been preaching with a lot of these guys. So as far as you know, playing time and all that, I asked Davey pregame about... Victor Robles, and he said he's going to be in there on Tuesday and Wednesday. Felt like this was a good matchup in this game for Thomas and for Yadiel Hernandez, who was in left. But you are going to see a little bit of this where he's looking for matchups. And he's also trying to keep everybody engaged when they're not pinch hitting opportunities. He wants everybody to play. So we may see some more of D. Strange Gordon out there here and there. Eventually, I think after a few weeks or a month, you start to see who's got it and who doesn't. And I think you may have a more set starting outfield in terms of left and center. But for now, it may be a little bit of a mixing and matching based on matchups and then kind of see who is swinging a hot bat and who isn't. Yeah, I mean, it's a four-man dance for those two spots right now with Robles, Thomas, Strange Gordon, and Yadiel. And Especially with the Yadiel, we've seen a good bit of Yadiel, a little more than I thought we would see in this early portion of the season. But he's done some things. I mean, it's not like he's done nothing so far. So good to see those guys do as they did. Like I said, Soto, Cruz, and Bell did produce to varying degrees on Monday night. Soto, one for four with a single, two walks. Cruz, one for four with a single 
in two walks. How about that walk that Cruz drew in the top of the fourth, an 11-pitch walk? He was down 1-2. He works an 11-pitch walk. Josh Bell on Monday night, two for five with two RBI singles and a walk. You know, it was really good to see the Nats draw walks in this game. They had not been doing that so far this season. Seven walks on Monday night. And how'd you like the base running from Josh Bell? You know, he had that uh, boo-boo the other day getting caught stealing, but really nice piece of base running for Bell in scoring on the Lane Thomas one-out ribby single to center field in the seventh inning. Close play at home plate. Bell headed home. Duvall with a great arm comes up throwing. The feet first slide, and he is safe. He got the hand in over the backside of the plate. But Bell scores from second base and really adeptly slides around the tag of the Braves catcher, Manny Pena. I don't know, Josh Bell, he's feeling himself this season so far (laughs) as a base runner. But you know what? That was impressive what he did on Monday night. It was. It was a great slide. I think you see more and more of this. It used to be the idea of, you know, you might slide in head first to the plate, but you're kind of going straight in or maybe a little to the side. I think you're seeing more technique from these guys now of how to avoid the tag and kind of wrap yourself around the bag and almost touch it like trailing with your trailing hand. And there's a little bit of art to that, I think, as guys have learned how to do that to avoid the tag. So good on him for that. As we've said, his defense has been outstanding for these first three games. He's kind of been all over the place, Josh has. More power to him. You mentioned the 11-pitch walk by Cruz, and that was the theme of the whole night offensively. They made the Braves pitchers work. They saw 201 pitches in this game. And it sure felt like it because it was another long game that ended at like 11 p.m. The Braves wind up throwing three different guys, each of them going parts of three different innings. And you had Enoa throw 72 pitches in three innings, Strider throw 71 pitches in three and a third, and then Davidson 58 pitches in two and two thirds. And so what that actually did is the thought around here was that Davidson was going to start on Tuesday and he got burned up. And now Brian Snitker told reporters after the game, they're going to call up two pitchers from AAA to kind of start tomorrow and get as many innings as they can out of them before they then go to the rest of the bullpen. So already in game two of a series, the Nats have the Braves pitching on the ropes. Who would have seen that coming? Yeah. And all of a sudden, the Nats bullpen is on a nice little roll here. Three consecutive good games by the pen. Davey, for the first time this season, does not use at least four relievers in a game. Hallelujah. Three Nats relievers. He almost did, though. He had somebody warming in the ninth as Patrick Murphy was laboring with a 10-run lead. I was going to say, Patrick Murphy made things interesting in in that bottom of the ninth, giving up only the run. It was 11-2 the final, not 11-1. But yeah, three Nats relievers combined to allow one run in three and two-thirds innings with five strikeouts. Uh, The standouts clearly were Victor Arano and Hunter Harvey. Uh, You know, Davey Martinez develops his favorites. Victor Arano, I think, pretty clearly is emerging here as a Davey favorite. Victor Arano, I think, might be the new Wander Suero. If this was pro wrestling, Victor Arano is going to take off a mask, and it's Wander Suero (laughs) under the mask. That's what we're going to end up seeing here. But Arano was good on Monday night. One and two-thirds perfect innings with three strikeouts. He came into the game Bottom of the sixth, runner on first, one out, retired the two batters he faced, including striking out Austin Riley. This was really good on three consecutive swinging strikes off Riley having been ahead in the count, 2-0. And then Arano tossed a perfect bottom of the seventh with two strikeouts. And then speaking of strikeout stuff, Hunter Harvey, 
in his Nats debut, a perfect bottom of the eighth inning. We've talked about Hunter Harvey, oft injured, but nobody's ever doubted the stuff. His fastball topped out at 99.2 miles per hour. Hunter Harvey with the mullet, and he's he's got that look. I mean, he is a classic closer, okay? Now, whether he ends up becoming that, who the heck knows, but he's got the stuff, and if he can just stay healthy, he can be a weapon for the Nats, but really cool to see Orano and Harvey do as they did on Monday night. Yeah, so that was, I think, especially in Harvey's case, they all kind of wanted to see that. Does he have it or not? He got called up. We talked about the crazy travel day he had, he and his wife, to join the team. Didn't pitch on Sunday. They found the spot for him. And, I mean, how many relievers over the years have we talked about with the Nationals throwing 99? Not many of them. You know, while the rest of the baseball world has had that kind of power arms at the back of a bullpen, the Nats haven't had many of them. So, We'll see. It's one game, and we know the track record with him. You can't assume anything, but that was a really good thing to see. And he threw strikes. I mean, 10 out of 16 pitches for strikes. That was good. Arano was great. I agree. It's all of a sudden, it's like he becomes Davey's guy because of a couple of appearances, but it's working. So we'll see. This guy does have experience, and I'm guilty of not really paying attention to him in spring training. I probably should have. He pitched parts of three seasons for the Phillies before getting hurt, and he had decent numbers for them when he was in their bullpen. So he has a little bit of a track record there, and they obviously like him, like him so much that he can pitch multiple innings. In terms of Harvey, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but you can envision a scenario in your head where you could say Hunter Harvey, Tyler Clippard, who's not here yet, but I think we're going to see him fairly soon, Sean Doolittle, Steve Ciszek, Kyle Finnegan, Tanner Rainey. They're probably not all going to pan out and be great, but if four of those six do turn out to be pretty good, that's a good bullpen. And something that even in this team's good years have not necessarily had. They've quietly put together the potential for a very solid bullpen. Now, all these guys need to come out and prove it, and not just in one outing, but over a period of time. But they have options where they're not necessarily confined to counting on two guys to carry the load. They may have five or six they can trust before this is all said and done. Yeah, and in terms of roster construction, I do really like how Rizzo did this. These are all low-cost guys. Nobody costs big money, and I think that's the way you do bullpens now. You know, there was that trend for a while of spending money on relievers, but get guys, low-cost, high-velocity. I think it's always kind of smart to get guys coming off maybe down years because you know that they can be good. And, you know, you maybe have some of that here with some of these guys. You have guys with upside, in other words. And so, yeah, I mean... These last three games, the bullpen has been a strength for the Nats. There's no doubt about that. Hey, guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Get your degree in savings during Window Nation's spring break sale. Get two free windows for every two windows that you buy for as many as you need and make no down payment and pay no interest for 24 months. Just call 866-90NATION or visit windownation.com. As you surely know, we have been having very up and down temperatures lately. With up and down temperatures, it's difficult to stay comfortable in your home. With old drafty windows, the longer that you have old drafty windows, the more money that you waste on your heating and cooling bills. Window Nation has saved customers over $60 million on energy bills. Buy two windows, get two free. Pay nothing for two years. No money down, no payments, and no interest for two full years. Save thousands. These are savings that you'll only see 
once this year. Window Nation has installed over a million windows and has an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Nets fans, can you believe this? Pretty cool, huh? For the first time since 1924, we brought the World Series Championship back to our nation's capital. On behalf of my mother, Annette, and the entire Lerner Cohen and Tannenbaum family, we're all thrilled that my 94-year-old father, Ted Lerner, had his dream come true to bring a world championship to his hometown. We had the game on Monday night, and it was great to see the Nats do as they did, but there was no Nationals item on Monday bigger than this bombshell regarding the learners. And that is that the learners have begun exploring the possibility of changing the club's ownership structure, including potentially selling the team. Nobody saw this coming. This was broken by the Washington Post. Davey Martinez essentially confirmed the news with you guys prior to the game during his pregame press conference. Now, you know, this is being positioned for now as no timetable, no expectation, might take on minority investors, might not potentially sell the team, might not. There's a lot to discuss here. I guess I would start by saying this. I don't think this gets out if the learners aren't serious about selling the team. I think this stuff about dressing it up as, well, maybe, maybe not, minority investor, we don't know. I think this is them saying, we're ready to sell the team. I don't think you put this out there. I don't think you confirm this. You know, it's possible the learners leaked this to Barry's Verluga. We know he has a good relationship with the learners. So I read this as the Nats are up for sale, whether that's being said or not. What do you make of this? I don't know if I 100% agree with the last part, but I do think they wanted the story out there. 
that's all due respect to Barry, who's a fantastic writer, reporter, and columnist. But I don't sense that this was him digging around and stumbling upon this or kind of getting a whiff of it and getting it confirmed. I think the Lerner family had already decided to do this and wanted it out there. And I mean, you can also tell that Mark Lerner, before the story was published, on Monday started calling people and letting people with the team know so they weren't blindsided by it. He called Davy Martinez this morning and told him Davy was shocked. He never saw it coming. But I know he appreciated getting that heads up about it. So they knew the story was coming out. And I don't think they were trying to prevent it from coming out anything like that. Now, the question is, did they do that because they want to start putting some feelers out and seeing is there anyone out there who might want to join up with them and be part of it? Or did they do that to say, okay, doors open, guys, come on, you know, the for sale sign is up, open house, come on in, make us your best offer. I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure anybody really knows the answer to that. But look, I was caught off guard too. I, I landed in Atlanta and shortly after that saw the news. It's, you know, as a writer, you kind of mentally prepare yourself for various big stories that could break at any moment. This wasn't one that I really considered. I never got the sense that the Lerner family wasn't in this for the long haul. Certainly a couple years ago when Ted Lerner kind of handed off the reins to the organization to Mark, that seemed to be the first step in that. And now Mark would be in charge for a while until his kids or his nieces and nephews were ready to take over someday down the road. So it's almost hard for me to believe that this could actually be where it goes if it was for them to sell. I think regardless, it's not going to be a quick thing. You know, I think this is the beginning of a process that can take a while, but it'll be fascinating to see what is out there. What are the offers? The world's very different today than it was two years ago. And I think that's part of the equation here, both what the last two years have done to, to the learners from a baseball business standpoint and from their outside business standpoint, because they were hurt by that just as much, if not more so. So I think that's potentially a huge part of this. So you have to ask yourself, well, why now? Why are the learners doing this? You know, Mark Lerner became the Nats managing principal owner in June 2018. He at the time said the following to the Washington Post, quote, we will never sell the Nationals, end quote. This apparently was never something the learners were going to do. And now potentially it is something that the learners are going to do. So, you know, you think about things logically. The learners are very rich. We know that. But you can be worth billions, but not necessarily have billions of dollars in cash on hand. I do wonder if there is maybe a cash flow problem with the Nats. When you are seeking, especially minority investors, you usually seek those investors because you need the cash. The learners are best known for making their money in commercial real estate. We know that that got bludgeoned by the pandemic. The learners never enjoyed the financial windfall they should have enjoyed off the Nats winning the World Series in 2019, again, because of the pandemic. And we also have the uh, regional cable television situation from which the learners have not reaped the money that the learners, I think a lot of people believe, should have reaped. So when you add all of that together, I'm not saying we need to set up a GoFundMe account for the learners, but I think it is possible that there is a bit of a cash flow problem here. Why else would the learners be wanting to potentially sell the team right now? Like, you got to think about this. Like, why would this be happening? Now, there are potentially other issues or other reasons. You know, if you go by Forbes, the Nats now are worth $2 billion. The learners in 2006 paid $450 million. So maybe you just want to cash out on an investment that has worked out spectacularly. Maybe 
the learners are just done with owning a baseball team off having won the championship a few years ago. But I think you're naive if you're not wondering about, hmm, two years removed from the pandemic, Nats never got to truly reap the benefits of winning a championship financially. I think that might help to explain why this is happening right now. Yeah, those are all the thoughts that went through my head over the course of the day as I tried to understand it too, because I had the same feeling like, why now? Like, this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And then you start to think about all that and you say, okay, yeah, that does make some sense. And both of their businesses have been really hurt by the pandemic, like a lot of people. And again, we're not, you know, feeling sorry for them when so many other people have really, truly suffered both health-wise and financially over the last two years. But business owners across the world have been hurt by it. And commercial real estate, people aren't going into offices to work the way they used to. Malls, which they have owned, are almost non-existent now. And like you said, the Nationals, we got a taste of it over the weekend. When they're drawing 21,000 on a Saturday night against the Mets, that doesn't bode well for what the attendance for the season is going to be this year. So both of their businesses, as it were, are not in as good a financial shape as they were in 2019. So it does explain all of it. I think there are other factors, like you said, let's remember Ted Lerner is 96 now. He got to experience them winning the World Series. He's, by all accounts, always been in very good health, but you're 96 years old. (laughs) Mark Lerner has gone through his own health challenges, cancer. He lost his leg to cancer a few years ago. And what we don't really know, you know, I've met some of his children who were really like kids when the team was bought by them and are now young adults. And I've never really got the sense of how interested they are in running the team someday. And who knows, it could be sooner than we think because of Mark Lerner's health and what he's gone through. And, you know, he's well into his 60s as well. So you put that all together and you can kind of understand why this would be the case. And if somebody out there is willing to spend, say, $2 billion, $2.5 billion on a team, it's got to be awfully tempting to do that. Now, the flip side of it is, if they were to sell the team right now, you're kind of doing it at a low point. You know, obviously, it's still worth, it's a huge profit from where they started, but they had they sold it right after the World Series in 19, they'd probably make even more. So part of you wonders, wait it out a little, see if the team gets better again, and maybe that number goes up. Or maybe you say, hey, you know what? It's already enough of a profit. We don't really need to worry about that. Yeah, there are so many dynamics here. You know, for years, people have said that the Orioles could soon be up for sale, that Peter Angelos has been in failing health, and that whenever, you know, his time comes, the Angelos family might sell the Orioles. So it's interesting to think about these two teams that are reasonably close together geographically could be up for sale at the same time. And I don't know if maybe the Nats, the learners are trying to get a head start on their sale of their team versus what the Orioles might be doing. The other thing, and you referenced this, so I agree, right? Like, think about the sale of a team. It's probably not a lightning quick process. So what does this mean with Juan Soto? You know, usually when you're trying to sell a team or a company, you cut costs, right? So if that's the mindset that you're about to adopt here, you're not going to try to lock up Juan Soto to some $400 plus million contract extension. You're not going to saddle the next owner with some mega money contract like that. And if you're Soto and you see a team going through first a rebuild and now an ownership change, you might be saying to yourself, no, I'm out of here in a few years. Now, on the flip side, you could say, if you resign Soto, well, might that add to the value of the franchise? So it could work in the favor of the Nets 
re-signing Soto. But I think that's a fascinating aspect of this. If the Nats are up for sale, and it's an if, right? But if, what does this mean for this Juan Soto contract saga? So you could also say that, generally speaking, and we have no idea, first of all, if they are selling, and then secondly, if they did, who would be buying the team. But very often, a new owner of a prime sports franchise wants to make a big splash right away and show a commitment to winning. So maybe that person would already know they wanted to make a gigantic offer to Juan Soto to keep him here. So, I mean, there's a lot of ways, of course, this could all go. Like we said, this is probably a slow process, so I don't know that this necessarily impacts anything that's happening right now in those terms. And I think also, like we've said, much as everyone wants to hope and believe that Soto could sign a long-term deal right now, even if ownership is committed to being here for another 50 years, I don't know that Juan Soto in his situation is all that motivated to agree to a deal right now. We've discussed the reasons why. Maybe there's a number out there that you just can't say no to. But for the most part, if he just plays out the system, he's going to end up better off in the long run. It doesn't mean he can't still resign here. But yeah, I mean, you're right. The timing of it all is just remarkable how all these things are converging. And like you said, it could go in a number of different directions. There are so many unknowns here. It's really an unusual situation. And one, like I said, none of us really thought we'd be talking about right now. Yeah. I mean, what could this mean for Mike Rizzo? What could this mean for Davey Martinez? What if the Nats get a new owner? I mean, what if Jeff Bezos ends up buying the Nats? Okay. We know that he's establishing roots here in Virginia with this HQ2 thing. What if you have Jeff Bezos owning the Nats and Steve Cohen owning the Mets? Imagine that arms race in the National League. So let your imagination run wild. But this was a bombshell on Monday. I don't think I'm overstating things when I say that. Like, this is a really big deal. And we'll see what ends up coming from it because we don't know right now. And the learners themselves may not know right now. You tell us what you think. If ever there's something to comment on regarding the Nats, this is it. Uh, You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you would like to become a sponsor of the Nats Chat Podcast, we welcome you with open arms, and you can email Tim Shovers about that, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Our new Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt is out. You can get yours by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nats radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Finally, I want to say a special word to the veterans on this team. From now on, you can call me Grandpa Shark. 